to open up to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look at a pretty important section of Scripture in regard to church history. Have you guys ever noticed, I don't know if you've, this has been your experience by any chance, but uh, things are happening, God's moving, maybe uh, things are going on in the church, and not everybody's happy about it. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, I think it's part of our nature. Jesus warned not to put new wine in old wineskins. Old wineskins don't have anything to do with age. Old wineskins have everything to do with being rigid and set in a way and not open to the anointing and guiding and leading of the Holy Spirit. Things change. The church changes. The church is an organism. And though that organism has organization within it, built within it, it still functions as an organism. God, by His Spirit, moves. Things change. You know, pews disappear and chairs show up. I don't know. Stuff happens. It's no different than how it was then. We still sometimes struggle with that. And we can become rigid in our way. And this is how it should be. And I don't have the ability to see anybody else's point of view or the fact that anything else could be any differently than what I'm suggesting it should be right now. And that becomes a real stiff, hard focus. And and we have to guard against that. We saw Peter. when Peter. Remember when Peter went to Cornelius' house? He had the dream. Remember the dream? The sheet comes down, all kinds of living creatures on it. The Lord says to Peter, arise, kill and eat. Peter says, no, not so, Lord, which is not a good thing to say. But he says, not so, Lord, for I have never touched anything unclean. And Jesus said, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. What was the point? The point was not his diet. The point was the gospels going to the Gentiles. Knock on the door of Peter's house, and there's a guy asking him to come to Gentile land. Peter brings a bunch of friends. He goes and stays in this Gentile's house, which was against the rigid code of the day, especially with a Jewish person. And he asks the guy, what did you send for me for? And he says, well, an angel came and told me that you would tell me (coughs) what I need to be saved. So Peter starts to preach. He don't even get into it. He's like, his message is two verses or three verses in Acts chapter 10. He's, he don't get very far before the people believe. And in that belief, in that faith, when they have that moment of faith, immediately the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues. Peter's blown away. He's like, how in the world did you guys get saved? I didn't ask you to come forward yet. I didn't ask you to raise your hands. And you certainly didn't pray a prayer with me. But they got saved. Sometimes we can get so rigid in a code or a method. God's not a God of methods. God is a God of of the Spirit. God has plans. God has order. God has absolute and total truth. But He's constantly moving. He's constantly reaching out. There was a time in the church when there's no way... You could hang out in church without your shirt tucked in. Or maybe you guys never experienced that. I remember I couldn't hang out without my shirt tucked in. And I certainly, my father would never let me wear flip-flops to church. 
You can't do that. That's, that's disrespectful. There was no disrespect or respect intended. It was, it was the rigidity that we can find ourselves in. Now, we need to be rigid in terms of the essentials of faith. Those are absolutely unbendable. But that's it. After that, we want to be open to what God's doing. There was a time when nobody cared. Nobody cared about a bunch of hippies at the beach. Nobody. They didn't fit in the crowd. They smell funny. Most of them smell like they've been smoking pot. If you remember back in those days of the early parts of the Jesus movement, when those dudes were coming, they, they weren't perfect or cleaned up before they came. They came by droves. If they wouldn't come, they took church to the beach. They started going to where the people were and teaching the message. That, has, that, that method, that mode has, has in common with every revival known to mankind. That the revival doesn't start in, well it may start in here in the church, but it goes out there. It doesn't wait in here for them to come in. It goes out. It goes to the beach, goes to the skate park, goes to the park, goes wherever they are. With the truth. <coughs> with the truth. We see in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and they went and they've come back, and wow, the power of God moved in incredible ways. And churches were founded all over the region of Galatia. In fact, if you want to read about this section of the book of Acts, Paul writes about it in a letter to the Galatians, which is to the churches that he visited on the first missionary journey. And so they, 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 incredible things were going on, incredible things were happening. And they get back. And not everybody's happy about it. Not everybody's happy about new direction. Not everybody's happy about what's going on. So in Acts chapter 15, grace goes on trial. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase before. Grace goes on trial. And when grace goes on trial, Paul's going to use a lot of things at his disposal. We'll talk about more of those things uh, a little bit later on as we work our way through the book of Acts. But here we have grace on trial. You see, people come to visit the church in Antioch after Paul and Barnabas get back. They heard the Gentiles were getting saved, and they wanted to make sure that the Gentiles were doing the things they're supposed to do if you're really saved. You ever heard people say that? Because we've got to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to do if we're really saved. And, and somewhere, somebody elected us, the the governing body to look at someone else's life and figure out whether or not they're saved based on what they're doing or not doing. When we look in the pages of Scripture, the pages of Scripture do not say, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. The Scriptures say, work out your salvation. Are you saved? Where are you at? Well, these guys come. Look at it says. We'll, we'll read together in Acts chapter 15. We'll go from, uh, oh, probably to verse 33. We'll see. Let's read together. Where did I put my glasses? They're hanging around my neck. <clears throat> and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when, <coughs> excuse me, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders, they came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge we shall not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But that we... <laughs> write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, <clears throat> being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Namely, Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things." That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. 
And when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the section of scripture that deals with grace being on trial. And the concept of what it is that saves a man. Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. A heart willing to receive the word of truth through your spirit, Lord, as we come before you this morning and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a pretty incredible section of scripture, right? Paul and Barnabas give back. They're super stoked about all the things that have been going on, how God's been moving, the things that have been happening in the church. And right then, it just so happens that a group of guys, later on, they're going to get a name. The name's going to be called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who came and preached that you needed to be circumcised and you had to keep the law in order to be saved. In essence, you had to become a Jew so that you would be able to receive salvation. Now the scripture tells they came and taught, but Paul and Barnabas contended earnestly for the faith, right? Verse 2 of chapter 15 tells us that there was no small dissension. That's Bible speak for there was a rumble in the jungle. They got with it. Paul and Barnabas did not listen. You ever wondered, it's kind of uncomfortable. But when I was going through Bible college, we'd have a time in Bible college where Every student would come up and they would do a devotion, early morning devotion, to the whole group of kids that was a part of Bible college. <clears throat> and anytime you did that, you were never really sure exactly what you were going to get because, you know, anybody can go to Bible college, right? And one time, I remember there was this uh, person who was sharing who had some weird views, strange, um, wild, crazy ideas. Not biblical, uh, not even things that were in the Bible, which thereby made it kind of weird at Bible college. But they were up there teaching, and all us Bible college students are looking at each other like, man, this dude is heretical. What are we supposed to do? We're sitting around looking at each other, and finally, <laughs> finally, I think part of it is a, was a drill with our professor. The, the guy who was running the class, he gets up and kind of interrupts his teaching and walks up and says, hey, we need to pray uh, and, and go about our, our class. He stopped the teaching, shut it down, prayed, sent us loose, and then afterwards he wanted to know, how come we waited so long? What are you waiting for? It says in the Bible, when they came and they brought heresy, that immediately Paul and Barnabas piped in. Hey, that ain't right. That's not good. That's not Okay. The Bible calls for us to be Bereans. Just because Jackie says it doesn't make it true, right? There is only one place on the face of the earth where absolute truth can be found, and that's in the Word of God. And if it doesn't agree with what's going on in the Word of God, it's got no business being spoken of in God's house, in God's place, in the place where we come together to worship. <clears throat> they contended earnestly. They said, that's not right. They had this big old brawl. Crazy. Now, I don't know. I was sharing last time, uh, if you've ever been to, to Israel, I don't know how many people have been to Israel, but if you ever watch two Israelis discuss something they're passionate about, it is wild. I mean, you're about guaranteed sure that somebody's going to start swinging. 
It looks like they're so passionate in there. And of course, you can't understand what they're saying. So sometimes your imagination goes, man, I wouldn't let him call me that. You let him call you that, you know. But they're talking. I remember one time on the, on the bus, tour bus, we're going someplace and the tour guy's talking to the bus driver and they're going back and forth. And it looks like, man, somebody's going to jump up and throw the other one out the bus. And then about that time, the tour guy turns around and he just calmly starts talking to us about where we're going. And <clears throat> I guess he's seen the looks on our face like, what was that? And he says, oh, don't worry about that. We're just, we're just talking about directions, which way we should go. It's like, man, what happens when you talk about something scary? So they're, they're, very, they're very impassioned. So this was an impassioned thing. You know, they come together as a church. They're sharing. Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and they say, this is not okay. They argued. And so when they argued, the church, I want you to notice that it was a church it says, they determined in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go to Jerusalem. <coughs> in verse 3, it says, so being sent on their way, how? By the church. So the church in Antioch, they said, hey, this is something we got to solve. If we all got to get circumcised, we would like to know that. So they send Paul and Barnabas back down to Jerusalem. And they, this is... Uh, I call this a Jerusalem council. Not everybody agrees that this is a council, but here's what I see. The church as a whole, all of Galatia, all of Antioch, uh, Cilicia, come down to Jerusalem to deal with an issue. If that's not a council, I don't know what it is. But they're, they're working it out. They want to know, what's, what, where are we at? What is the Word of God teaching? What is the Word of God saying? What is the Spirit telling us? How should we move forward? Is man saved by grace? Or does he have to do something? Does he have to do something in order to earn that salvation or the grace of God? So, it says in verse 3, They went, and they everywhere they went, through Phoenicia and Samaria, they described the conversion of the Gentiles and with great joy to all the brethren. Everybody's stoked that the church is blowing up. The church is blowing up. I'm not just talking about the local church, but I want you to remember the church of Jerusalem has... At least 8,000 people in the church. Right? How many people got saved at Pentecost? 3,000. How many people got saved a few, a few days later when they preached it around the temple? It says 5,000 were added. So, you got 8,000 people. Now, they didn't all stay in Jerusalem, but, but I don't know how, what your definition is of a church what's too big. But that had 8,000 people, and they couldn't even fit in a building. They went to the temple court to have church. That's where they did it. That's where they met. Then persecution came. They began to scatter around. But that still kind of had the special place. Why? Because the apostles were all there. Peter's there. James, the brother of Jesus. They're there in Jerusalem, gathered together. <clears throat> so it says when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all the things that God had done. So they, they come to the church and the church is meeting. They're gathered together. Paul and Barnabas, they say, man, you wouldn't believe what God's doing. And they kind of recite all the things that happened on their first missionary journey. Which was a lot of stuff, right? It, we've been going over it for like six weeks. It took, a long, it took them nine months. So you just think, how long, how many stories you're going to have in nine months. That's how long. So they, they start to share. And as they're sharing, a group of Pharisees stand up. A group of Pharisees says in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees, and what's the next two words in your Bible? Does it say, who believed? Okay, look, this is brothers. 
the Pharisees had a, had a problem. And we all got to kind of guard against being Pharisaical. Okay? The, the concept being uh, extreme, being caught up in extreme legalism or being rigid. But think of all the good things about the Pharisees. They believed that the Word of God was authoritative for today and to be obeyed. That's a good thing, right? They believed in angels. They believed in the miraculous. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that the Messiah was coming. The Sadducees didn't believe any of those things, but the Pharisees did. So they would, when the Word of God came in the synagogue and people got saved, Pharisees got saved. But I want you to think about what they had spent their whole life teaching and learning about. was the law. And so they get saved, and they don't have... When they got saved, guys, in the synagogue, when they gave their life to the Lord, they didn't start passing out New Testaments to them. They didn't have New Testaments. In fact, New Testaments were just now being written. So while the New Testament... We're probably 20 years, at this point, 20 years from the resurrection of Christ. So 20 years have passed... Things are coming out. Letters are starting to go out. The, the Word of God is growing. But they spent all their life in the Old Testament. So that's what they know. So they stand up and they say, Listen, the way we read the Word of God, you got to be circumcised and you got to keep the law. So that's what they say in verse 5, right? They say, <clears throat> It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. What do you think that's going to do to the church? I don't know. Maybe people will be willing to do anything. That's why they're in, the, in, in Judaism there was something called the God-fearers. They were guys who believed in everything that the Jews believed in, but they weren't circumcised. For them, circumcision was kind of a deal-breaker. So if that was the real deal, they needed to get that information out, right? That's got to go. If that's, if that's how you're saved, that's important. So this council begins over this issue. Are you saved by grace? Or are you saved by circumcision and keeping the law? That's a pretty big issue in the church, right? Today the argument is not about whether or not man is circumcised. Today the argument is about whether or not man is able to do enough stuff to earn salvation. Can he knock on enough doors? Can he talk to enough people? Can he do whatever the quote-unquote church is asking him to do so that he can attain to the level of having salvation? Is that any different? That's not circumcision, but it's still works of the law, right? It's still, you got to do something to be saved. Either Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection is enough, or it was, or it's not. And if it's not... We're all in trouble. That's a big question. So they gather together. They're going to deal with this question. Look what happens in verse 6. So the apostles and the elders come together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, there's that phrase again. No small dissension. When there had been much dispute. This is a big deal, guys. People are passionate about it. I mean, let's face it. Salvation depends on it, right? How are we saved? That's kind of an important thing to know, right? How are we saved? What is the meat and potatoes of salvation? So it said, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
Peter started this whole problem. Peter started this whole problem when he went to Cornelius and Gentiles got saved. But Peter's going to say, guys, there's a problem with your logic. Because God has already attested that the Gentiles are saved. And now you're trying to come afterwards and add something to it. And it don't fit because God has already stated irrevocably that they're saved. What do you mean? Well, let's look at what he said. He said, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your salvation. It is a proof that you are saved. The Holy Spirit does not come in you or upon you if you're not saved. The Holy Spirit can come alongside. No one comes to the Lord except the Holy Spirit draws him, right? But when you get saved, the Holy Spirit moves in. And the Holy Spirit moved in. And they knew that the Holy Spirit moved in because they saw the same thing they saw on the day of Pentecost. That doesn't mean that speaking in tongues saves you. It means they saw evidence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these Gentile believers and they said they're saved. They're just like us. God makes no distinction. Jew, Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus. So Peter is telling them, listen, God in verse 9 made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts. How? By faith. How are you justified? That word justified means how are you made in a right relationship with God? You are, in in case everybody doesn't know this, let me back up a little bit. You're guilty. The Bible says, if you have broken one point of the law, you are guilty of it all. One point. For the most part, we have broken multiple points of the law. We're guilty. Jesus said, I did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. He said, the world's already condemned. And this is the condemnation of the world, that light has come to the darkness, but men love the darkness rather than the light. He says, men are condemned already, guilty, now. Jesus came to absolve our guilt. And how does he absolve our guilt? It says, their hearts were purified by faith. They believed. And God accounted it to them as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? The Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Belief. In belief. And those guys that Peter was preaching to, they believed. They didn't come forward. They didn't raise their hand. They didn't even pray the prayer of salvation. They believed in their heart, were saved. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And the evidence of their salvation was evident to all who were there. That's a pretty radical thing. Because God doesn't like to work in our little boxes, in our, in our little rigid walls that say God always has to work this way, like this, all the time. So there's this radical salvation. And so Peter says, guys, this is how they're saved. And he puts them to two questions. One, why do you test God? God said they're saved. Why are you testing him? Why are you now coming afterwards and saying they got to be circumcised and they got to keep the law? First question, Peter asked them. Second question, why are you putting the yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Do you mean that nobody ever kept the law? 
Yeah, that's what I mean. Nobody, Moses didn't keep the law? Well, let me ask you, did Moses go to the promised land? How come? Oh, that's right. He broke the law. What about David? David, a man after God's own heart. Surely he kept the law. Oh, there's that adultery thing, right? Hmm. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom went into captivity with Assyria as a direct result of not obeying the law. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom went into captivity of Babylon by the direct result of not obeying the law. Peter said, why are you trying to put on them something we couldn't do? Something we couldn't accomplish. We have to understand what was the purpose of the law. They're missing the concept of what was the purpose of the law. What was the law there to do? By the law is the knowledge of sin, not the power of salvation. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Guys, Romans 3.20 tells us, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. So how many people will get into heaven by doing good things? The word in in Romans 3.20 says, none. No flesh will be justified. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The point of the law is to show us we're law breakers. Right? We all know it every time you pass a speed limit sign. Do you know you're a lawbreaker? I have been pulled over twice in less than three minutes. It's true. That's why I don't go into Filer at all. I stay as far from Filer as I can. I got pulled over twice in five minutes in Shoshone. I try not to go through there either. I am thankful for Rusty, who is a part of our our, our fellowship <clears throat> because this morning I'm coming into church and I'm not really thinking about it. I'm doing 45 and a 35. In California, by the way, that was okay. But in Idaho, that's not okay. And I'm doing 45 and a 35 and I look up and about that time I see there's a, a police car coming the other way and I go, oh, dear Lord. And he turns on his lights. That's how I know it's rusty. <clears throat> and he sticks his hand out the window. And I just say thanks on the way by. Thanks, brother. (laughs) We're law breakers. The law does not the power of salvation. What does it say in Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to what? Salvation. For everyone who does what? Believes. So what is the power of salvation? The gospel. What does the law do? It shows us we need the gospel. It tells us we're guilty. I'm a sinner. So, so Peter's saying, why are you guys putting this stuff on him? You shouldn't be putting this stuff on him. We couldn't do it. The law shows us our sin. The power of God to salvation is the gospel. And that's what, what Paul and Barnabas had been talking about. <clears throat> How are we saved? What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us? For by grace you have been saved through faith. The next phrase It is not of yourselves. Can you do something to earn it? No. Nothing. Zip. 
The scripture says, it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? Lest anyone would boast. You Trust me, if we could earn our salvation, what would we be bragging about? Yeah, I got my salvation. It just took me one week. How long did it take you? Oh, it took you six months to get your salvation? Well, brother. Isn't that how we are? God says, look, you don't earn it. I give it to you. You receive it. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. To as many as believed on his name. That's the word of God. That's the gospel truth. So this is what Peter is telling them. Guys, this is not good. But look what happens after Peter shares. In verse 11 he says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, we'll be saved like them. Whoa. He didn't say, they'll be saved like us. He said, we are saved like them. You see, the Jewish people were believing circumcision was saving them and keeping the law was saving them and not the grace of Jesus Christ. But Peter is saying, listen, we're saved like they are. Circumcision doesn't save us. Circumcision doesn't do it for us. Keeping the law doesn't do it for us. It's the grace of Jesus Christ received and believed. That does the work of salvation in our lives. So Peter, after Peter finishes, three guys are going to talk. Peter shares, <coughs> Paul and Barnabas get up. In Revelation chapter 12, one of my favorite sections of scripture about dealing with the enemy. It says they overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. What's the blood of the Lamb? The fact that Jesus Christ has cleansed us white as snow, right? His, the gospel, the good news, the sacrifice of Christ. What's the second part? By the word of their testimony. What is the word of your testimony? What God has done in your life. Part three, they didn't love their lives to the death. They didn't care more about themselves than they cared about the Lord. So they were willing to do whatever. So Paul and Barnabas stand up and they just tell them what Jesus was doing through their ministry. How God worked miracles. How Paul got stoned and how Paul got back up again after being stoned and came back into the town. He started to tell them about the miracles and the healings and the things that God did. You cannot argue that. There is no, you can argue theology. Can we argue theology? Oh, some people go to school to learn how to do it. What are you studying? I'm studying how to argue theology. There's a place for it. But you can't argue testimony. Let me tell you what God did in my life. When I tell somebody what happened in my life, how I was diagnosed with HIV, how God healed me, how God restored my marriage and put all the pieces back together, they can't argue it. They can say, it didn't really happen. At which time I give them a letter from the Marine Corps and they can take it up with them. But the point is, you can't argue with testimony. We all have one of those, don't we? What God's done in our life. Well, Peter, they get up. Listen to what, Paul, sorry, but Peter already been up. (laughs) They get up and share. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.5. In Galatians 3.5 he said, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law? Or by you believing what you heard? Does God... Work miracles by His Spirit according to your works of the law. Do you, if you're good enough, God does something for you. He'll do a miracle for you if you're good enough. 
Or is it because of faith you believed? How many times did Jesus say, if you have faith? If you have faith like a mustard seed, you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. If you have faith like a mustard seed. Not if you did works, if you knocked on enough doors, if you reached enough people, if you did enough things, if you stopped speeding, and if you would wear the right clothes, and you would make sure that you kept your shirts tucked in, and you certainly never wore flip-flops to church, and by golly, definitely not ever shorts. Holy cow, what are you people thinking? Is that how we're saved? Is that how we're sanctified? Is that how we're justified? No. It's all the work that God does in our lives as we submit ourselves to him and allow him to work in us. Now we have the third person stand up. The third person is James. It says James stood up. Now this is not James the son of Bedeephazamba. <laughs> Slow down. I can do it. Nine minutes. I can do it. This is not James the son of thunder. This is James the Lord's brother. This is Jesus' brother who stands up. Kind of messes with a lot of theology for some people, don't it? He had brothers? Yeah, several actually. Another one wrote another. This is a James who wrote the book of James. Jesus had another brother. His name was Jude. Guess what book he wrote? You guys are so smart. So James stood up. Now James ties in with the legalists. James was a Jewish, Jewish Jew. And so when he stood up, probably most of the Pharisees said, All right, James, go get him. But they were surprised. What James had to say. Look what he had to say. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. <clears throat> that phrase, now I don't want to sound much like a Calvinist, but sometimes if you read the Bible, you can't help it. Do you know that God is sovereign? Do you know that God chose us? That's what the Bible says. I'm sorry if it doesn't fit with your theology, but that's what it says. The Bible also says there is human responsibility and we have to choose and we have to receive, doesn't it? The first chapter of John, it says that. When we look here, he says, he took out for himself his own special people. God chose Gentiles. He chose them. He went and grabbed them. What's that speaking of grace? What did the Gentiles do to get chose? Nothing. He just picked them. The Bible goes on to tell us in another place that he picked them according, they were predestined according to his foreknowledge. According to God's foreknowledge, they were predestined. He chose them. They came. It's grace. It's nothing that they did. That's the first thing that James says. God picked these guys. He re just like you reach into a barrel of apples and pick an apple. What did the apple do to get picked? Was it sitting there going, pick me, pick me, pick me. Oh, I'll pick that one. I wish it worked out that way. I wish sometimes when I went to go get a watermelon, the watermelon would sit there and go, pick me, pick me. Then I'd know I'm not picking that one. Everybody knows not to eat it talking watermelon, right? <laughs> you tap it, you shake it, you talk to it. And you can do whatever you want to. I don't care what you do. Everybody, every old woman, wife, old woman's tail. That's not how you do it. That's bad. Every, sorry. Every old wife's tail that tells you how to pick fruit is broken. 
And most of us don't even know what we're doing. We all do the same thing. We walk over to the mill and we tap it. What are you listening for? And how can you tell? Oh, that one's hollow. I'll pick that one up and take it home, cut it open, be the best watermelon I ever ate in my life. Then somebody will go, oh, this is a good one. Man, it's all rotten and mushy on the inside. Anyways, I digress. That has nothing to do with anything. The point is, how does it get picked? It gets picked because the one choosing it chose it. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace here. God chose them. He chose them. No question about it. It's absolute truth. It's in the word of God. I don't have to reconcile it with everything else. I just apply it to everything else. It's there. So what's he say? Not only does he say this, but he says, what does the word of God say? Isn't that important? Does that matter? By the way, what's the word of God say? Does it matter? Because our president doesn't think that matters. He thinks it's ridiculous. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Most presidents have been like him, by the way. I don't care where they come from. Most of them don't apply the word of God as authoritative. James says the word of God is authoritative. What's the word of God say about this? Look what he wrote in verse 16. <clears throat> this is out of Amos 9, 11, and 12. What does it say? After this, I will... What's that word? Return. What does return imply? If I say to you, after this, I will return. What does it mean? It means I'm here now. I'm going to go away. And I'm going to come back. This is God talking. When was he there? I will return. Implies he's been here before. Yeah. In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God of very God. And he will return. And what will he do? It says, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild the ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Who else? Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. How can a Gentile be called by the name of the Lord? Because they can be saved. How are they saved? By faith. The Old Testament never talked about the church. The church is a mystery. But there were hints. A mystery is not something that you don't see anything about. A mystery is something where there's little hints that point to it. And then when you see the reality, you go, ah, there it is. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, God said this was going to happen in the Word of God. So it's in the Word of God. It's salvation by grace. What else does that mean? Then what should we do about it? What's he say in verse 19? Therefore I judge, we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. <clears throat> he said, salvation is by grace through faith. Don't have to be circumcised. Don't have to keep a law. You don't have to do anything else but believe. And you can be saved. It's an important question. But he did say, not only are we not going to add anything else to them, but we are going to ask them to do this. Stay away from food that's polluted. That concept of polluted food, just so you can kind of get grasp the idea of what's going on. He's talking about being a part of the feasts in those days to the false gods. 
So if you were there at a feast of a false god because there's good food there, and you were eating polluted meat, what's everybody else think? By the way, the first two things he asked for are commandments in the Word of God. So God's Word says, stay away from idols. Doesn't it say, stay away from idols? So stay away from idols. The first thing he says to them, stay away from idols. Idols pollute everything. So don't go, you got to imagine, today you go to Albertsons. Back then you went to the Temple of Zeus to get your meat. You understand? There was no supermarket. If you wanted to have nice barbecue, you guys might say, oh, I'm going to have a nice barbecue. I'm going to go to, to the Redneck and the Rooster. Is that right? Rooster, Rooster and the Redneck. Sorry, I always want to do it backwards. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to have me some barbecue. Then you would say, i got to go to the temple. I go to the temple of wherever, Aphrodite or Alakazam. And I'm going to sit at the temple and that's where I'm going to receive my meal. And he said, stay away from all that stuff. It pollutes. Stay away from it. That's what he's talking about. Idols pollute everything. What's the second thing that's a commandment in the word of God? All sexual immorality. We have an issue in our world today where, where we think some sexuality is morally neutral. That means some sexuality or sexual practices are not a big deal. As long as if you're married, you don't cheat on your husband or wife. That's what the world thinks. That's what they thought then too. I mean, it was a regular practice for them to to take a prostitute. It was a regular practice for them to engage in sexual immorality. If you think, listen, I know sometimes we look back and we say, oh gosh, remember the good old days? When nobody ever slept with their somebody before they got married and nobody was ever pregnant and nobody ever did nothing wrong. Yeah, I don't know which planet you were on for that. But on this planet, that hasn't happened. Maybe you personally don't know of it, but that doesn't mean it wasn't going on. You'd be surprised. It's been going on since the Bible. Sexual immorality is always wrong. What is sexual immorality? Ask your mom and dad when you get home. If you're old enough to hear what sexual immorality is, any sex outside of marriage. That's any sex outside of marriage. Any, meaning any, outside of marriage. And by the way, the Bible does define marriage too. In case you're wondering, the Bible does define, says for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Husband and wife, not husband and husband, or wife and wife. It doesn't matter how much you want it to be true or how much you think everybody should be tolerant of whatever you want to do. I don't have to be tolerant of any sin. I don't have to be tolerant of anything else. I just want to say that the Word of God is authoritative. It's what the Word says. All sexual immorality, the Bible says, abstain. Stay out of it all. They struggled then, we struggle now. That's what the word teaches. He said two more things, two concessions. They're both still commanded in the Bible, but those commandments actually predate the law. And that is to stay away from anything strangled. When's the last time you had a good something strangled? I hope not. I ate at your house. It better not have been strangled. And to stay away from blood. Stay away from strangled, stay away from blood. Because those two things are very offensive to Jewish people. So it's a concession. It's a compromise, right? 
What's the Bible say? The Bible says not to cause a brother to stumble. We want to try to be evangelical. We want to be able to try to have doors open so that we can reach out. So we should not be offensive because of our freedom. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to be offensive. The Bible said life is in the blood. The blood is sacred. The Bible says it. Life is in the blood. The Bible says if you kill an animal, drain its blood and bury it. The Bible says that blood is sacred. Why is it sacred? Because it's life. Yeah, by the way, we didn't believe what the Bible said when George Washington was president, did we? How did we cure him? Oh, we killed him. How did we do that? We drained his blood because it was believed sickness was in the blood. But what did the Bible say? Life is in the blood. That's like um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 years ago that was written, maybe four. It's a long time ago, right? But it's probably not authoritative for us today. Life's probably not in the blood anymore, right? You can drain all your blood out anytime you want, and everything's fine now. <clears throat> no, it's still true, isn't it? Still true. Two commandments, two concessions. This is what he asked them to do. So what do they do? They write a letter. The whole church comes together, and they're all bound in one accord. They all agree. Now, from this point on, there's going to be a splinter group that breaks off. They're not for real. They're called the Judaizers, and they go around and try to start trouble. But in the church, they were unified. They settled the issue, saved by grace, through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God. Nobody's going to boast about it. We understand it. This is how you're saved. The church agreed, and they wrote a letter. They sent with them Barsabbas, Judas Barsabbas, and Silas. Silas is going to be Paul's next partner in the second missionary journey. <clears throat> they wrote this letter. Verse 24 says, Since we have heard that some went out from among us who troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. What's, what, are, what are they saying to him? Listen, not only are they saying we're in agreement, but now they give an explanation. Hey, we didn't send those guys, just so you know. They weren't under the authority of the church in Jerusalem. So it's important to understand if somebody's coming to you under somebody else's authority, because then you know that they believe it too. People ask me all the time, well, why do you care what name or what Bible study you put the name Calvary Chapel over? Well, because whatever's happening in that Bible study is assumed that Calvary Chapel is behind. And some things were not behind. Does that mean you can't have a Bible study? No, have a Bible study, knock yourself out. Just don't say it's Calvary Chapel Bible study. It's, if it's not in line with Calvary Chapel, where we're at, what our doctrine is, who we're about. What's the big deal? It's no big deal, right? So, <clears throat> same thing. They're saying, we didn't send these guys, so this is not something that came from us. This is not our concept. It's not our way. Then he goes on to tell us in verse 25 how much they love Paul and Barnabas. Listen. It seemed good to us, being assembled and of one accord, to send chosen men with you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They show their appreciation in this letter for Paul and Barnabas. What's that mean? Paul and Barnabas have our stamp. You can say Paul and Barnabas are beloved of the church of Jerusalem, of the twelve disciples, of the apostles, of the elders, of James. We're all together, we're all unified, we're all one, one team. That's what they're saying. 
So when Paul goes on a second missionary journey and somebody says, what are you doing here? He can say, hey, I'm here on the authority of the church. They have appreciated me. They have put their stamp of approval on me and my message. And that's how he's going to move forward in power with the church's appreciation. Next you see their compassion. It says, as we look at verse... uh, Verse 28 says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit in us to lay no greater burden than the necessary things. Don't have to be circumcised. We're just going to ask you, as brothers in the Lord, to care about how these things are going to look to your Jewish brethren whom we'd like to save. At that time, the world was divided into two parts, Jew and Gentile. We have a few more divisions today, don't we? I don't know why we like to define ourselves by something else. I choose to define myself as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of it, I don't care about. But that was their division. So they're saying, listen, let's, let's have compassion and understanding. Sexual immorality is not ever okay. Worshiping idols is not ever okay. And watch out for your brother and how you eat and what you do and what you experience in your freedom so that you don't cause your brother to stumble. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's laying out for them. And so he says, here's, the, here's what we want. Abstain from idols, abstain from blood, things that are, are, are strangled, from sexual immorality. Keep yourself away from these and you will do well. So they take this letter and they go back to Antioch and they get to Antioch and they read the letter and everybody in Antioch is stoked. They're like, right on. Man, that's so good. It says they rejoiced. They rejoiced. They were, they were happy. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Not only was there joy, there was encouragement. Then you have the two guys that came with them, Silas and Judas. It said that they had the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy simply placed, guys, is the ability to speak to large crowds. So the gift of prophecy at that time, that's exactly what it meant. The ability to speak to large crowds. It also involved foretelling or foretelling what God was doing, sometimes speaking forth the future. We know that because we look at what prophets did, right? Agabus, in the book of Acts, we see what he did. We see what was going on, and, and, and it, it involved teaching the Word. So what did they do? They exhorted. They learned about the Word of God, and the people grew. And the people were excited because we're saved. We're saved by grace, and we want to know more. What does God want from me now? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to live? What should, how should I apply these things in my life? And so they taught them, and they grew, and they experienced those things, joy and encouragement. And then it says in verse 33, and after they had stayed there a long time, that's Bible speak for, anybody have a guess? Long time. It's kind of like no small dissension. Long time, that doesn't mean like, you know, Jackie preached for like an hour. Would somebody tell him to stop? No, I can keep going. You watch. You'd be amazed how long I can talk. Ask Kathy. Land? Okay. Kathy's got your back. She told me land. They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. They were sent back with a greeting. What's a greeting? What's a Jewish greeting? What's the word? Shalom. What's it mean? Peace. Joy, encouragement, exhortation, and peace. That's what it's supposed to be like in church. That's what it was like even when they had disagreements. 
They worked their way through the disagreement, got to joy, encouragement, exhortation, and peace. If you haven't worked your way through those things, you need to. It's biblical. Work your way through to it. That counsel was important. It tells us we're saved by grace. If somebody tells you you have to do this or you have to do that or you have to do this, not to be saved you don't. There are changes that should take place in our life as a result of our salvation, absolutely. But it doesn't earn us our salvation. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the truth of your word, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you that we know that your word is authoritative, God. It has word for us today. It's not outdated, old, somehow doesn't fit or doesn't work. It is absolutely as true today as it was then. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who desire to apply that word. That we would stand fast. And the grace by which we have been saved. That we would know that it is a gift of God. I can do nothing to save myself. God does it for me through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for my sin. Lord, we are just so blessed and so thankful for the truth of your word. God, we pray that standing in that place would equip us, enable us, encourage us. To go out and spread the good news. So that others would know the truth. This is what the word of God says. This is how you are saved. God didn't save me to leave me the way he found me. He saved me to change me. From the inside out. I have become a new creation created in Christ Jesus. For good works that God has foreordained that I should walk in them. There's stuff for me to do, but it don't save me. It don't save me. What saves me? Receiving Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Believing that God raised him from the dead. Confessing with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in the heart. Lord God, we're so thankful. We're so blessed. We're so so honored, God, by your truth, Lord. And as we, as we come together as a body here this morning, Father, we just ask, send us out that we might take the good news, that we might share it with a world who thinks they're good enough to be saved, with a world that thinks their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. With a world that thinks if I knock on enough doors or I talk to enough people. With a world that thinks there's some other way to be saved other than receiving the Lord Jesus Christ into their heart to be their Lord and Savior. Lord God, I just pray that you would equip us to go and to tell. So that you might be glorified in all we do as we give you praise and glory for all you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.